This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Daniel Heath Justice to the channel. Dr. Justice is a professor of First Nations and Indigenous Studies and English at the University of British Columbia, where he also holds the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Literature and Expressive Culture. He's the author of many books, including his fabulous and most recent work, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, which came out just a couple months ago with Wilfrid Laurier University Press, and which we'll be talking about today. Daniel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Why don't we begin by having you just... Sorry? Hello? Hey, sorry. I I lost there for a second. They'll edit this out, so don't worry about it. Um, Okay. Okay. Let's start by having you talk a little bit about yourself and your background, both academically and otherwise. What path did you take to your current position and to your current interests? So uh, I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation uh, in Oklahoma, and I was raised in Colorado. But when I first went into literature, I was actually going to go into Gothic literature. Um, And it was a Chicano and Chicana lit professor um, in my undergraduate university who kind of prompted me to be thinking about uh, literature that was more connected to my family and where I was from. Um, And that started me off. And then I did my graduate work at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And uh, my focus was indigenous lit, particularly Cherokee lit. And then uh, Cherokee literature and Cherokee history uh, and Native studies more generally. And then my first job was at the University of Toronto, um, and now I'm at the University of British Columbia, and so it's kind of a circuitous route, um, but I'm back in the West with mountains on my horizon, which makes me very happy. And what was the impetus for this book in particular? What prompted um, the writing of this particular text for you? It was actually a student of mine uh, who had started up a kind of casual blog for her writing and wanted to invite people to participate in it, and she just asked me if I would write on why indigenous literature matter. I think at the time, like the terminology was why Aboriginal literature matters. Um, but, uh, might've been indigenous. I can't quite remember, but she, uh, she started me thinking about that. And I, I realized that I'd been teaching this work for many years and studying and publishing, but I hadn't really sat down to answer that pretty elemental question. And so I gave it some thought and I, I, wrote the blog for her, um, I wrote the post for her blog and then that just kept staying with me. And I, 
I got a little tired of people when I would tell them I was in indigenous literature, they would say, oh, well, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Or do they even have literature, right? Uh, very distancing and, and very strange questions. Um, and I thought, actually, probably we need a book that talks about why not only that talks about the existence of the literature, even though there's a huge amount of it and there's a huge amount of scholarship that still hasn't permeated into a lot of people's understandings, I think more so in Canada than in the States. Um, and I thought, you yeah, know, I actually want to take that topic up a little more um, significantly in book form. And the book itself is kind of still is informed by the spirit of the blog post, but it's quite a bit different. Um, I think the blog post was more assertive and the book itself um, asks more questions, which I think is more appropriate. And we'll loop back around to hopefully answering that question which you pose in the title. But before we do so, I want to start actually with something that you that you stick into the end of the book, one of the appendices. Can you tell us a little bit about the year of honoring Indigenous Writers Project, which you took part in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm kind of a late latecomer to uh, social media, but I really found Twitter to be quite uh, quite fun um, and frustrating and, and challenging in a lot of ways. But I still I think it's a, a pretty good um, platform for engaging literary issues. And uh, it was December, late December in 2015. And I had been engaged in a discussion with someone um, about or, or somebody had posted something about they're not the reason they didn't teach indigenous literature was because there wasn't very much. And that just really annoyed me. So um, on a whim, I decided I'm going to tweet uh, the name and work of an indigenous writer every day. And I wasn't actually thinking about doing it for a year. I just wanted to do something. So really the project started out of spite. Um, <laughs> and uh, I started and right away people were excited. Um, and Leanne Simpson, who's an Anishinaabe writer and scholar here in, in Canada, um, suggested the hashtag uh, honoring indigenous writers. And I didn't even really know what a hashtag was at that point. That's what a that's what a newbie I was with Twitter. But uh, I started doing that. And then I realized, actually, this could be something I could sustain for a good long time. And I plotted out the year. Um, and within a week or two, uh, I had the entire year planned out with one writer a day. Um, and then I was getting a lot of suggestions from other people on Twitter and I had way more suggestions than I could fit in a year. Fortunately, it was a leap year. So I had one extra name I could put in, but it just, it went way beyond anything I had anticipated. Um, and I made it through the entire year, uh, still with many, many writers that were un, unrepresented on the list, but it was a really great opportunity for me to celebrate indigenous writing, but I think it was also really informative for a lot of us, myself included, to see just how much writing there is, how you can't possibly contain it in a year, and how all of the arguments about a deficit in indigenous literary production are completely erroneous, that, that we have ample evidence of really, really exceptional uh, literary expression from all over the world. Mostly I focused on uh, Canada and the U.S., uh, but I looked elsewhere in the world as well. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. It it, uh, it was a fun project. Um, we ended up getting a, a poster made of it. There's a designer in Vancouver who did a really, really lovely poster of all the names um, and their uh, nation affiliations. So uh, it, it turned out to be really 
really exciting. And I wanted it in the book because I think it's just a really good place for people to go to see that actually, yeah, there's a lot. And pretty much any literary form that you read, there's some really exceptional indigenous representation in that form. Would you ever consider perhaps doing a, a sequel year, a second year of, of honoring indigenous writers? I don't know if I would. Um, I think that was a really great contained project and it had a good focus. I think it would be nice to see other people do something similar. Um, I did think about doing something specifically on Indigenous Studies scholarship, but I, th I think I have other projects I want to work on, um, but I'd love to see other people do similar kinds of things. Okay, so listeners, keep that in mind. Um, and for those that don't have a copy of the book in front of them, the appendix that, that we're talking about, it contains a list of all the writers that you tweeted out during the project itself, which is it's, it, it kind of forms almost like a, a handy bibliography in the back of the book. So I really appreciated that you included that in there. Thank you. So this is, as you say, in the book itself, it's, it's a book about stories. And again, to kind of paraphrase you, stories often start with words. So first, if you would, can you tell us why stories matter and what role stories play in the lives of communities and in individuals, just broadly speaking? Sure. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I wouldn't in any way be the first person to, uh, to make the assertion that as human beings, we are storied creatures, that our, our understanding of our world is very often in narrative form. Um, and in a lot of ways, this, the unstoried life is a, is a pretty desolate um, existence. Um, so that's just kind of being human. But I think especially for um, indigenous peoples and other marginalized peoples, um, story, the stories, our stories about who we are, um, are always contesting with an overcultures stories about who we are. And those stories are almost always, um, limited or erroneous compared to the, the stories of presence and affirmation that come from within our own um, context. And so I think story is, is very important, not just to affirm your humanity and your place in the world and where you come from and hopefully where you're going, but also to contend with the, um, the counter narratives that we have to deal with. And in many cases, especially when we're talking about colonial narratives, very, very destructive ones. So I think focusing on indigenous people's stories, black people's stories, um, LGBTQ, two-spirit people's stories, uh, a wide range of stories from all kinds of subject positions helps to complicate the simplistic biases that we've uh, that have been foisted upon us. And again, as you say, stories, they start with words. And on the topic of words, you spend a good amount of time in the introduction discussing terminology and unpacking some very complicated ideas about word usage. And I really appreciated what I found to be a pretty fascinating section early in the book. And I'm wondering if you can just take a minute to explain some of the complications inherent in some of the words you discuss, words such as settler or indigenous, and particularly the word literature. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the places, so I teach, I, I don't just teach indigenous literature specifically, I teach indigenous studies. And one of the first things we have to do is grapple with terminology. Terminology is always um, an issue that students are struggling with, that everybody struggles with, um, because we're dealing with not just terminology from within communities, um, but also terminology from outside of communities. And those don't always line up in easy or comfortable ways. So uh, a term like settler, which is quite common in Canada, increasingly starting to be one in the States, um, it's sometimes uh, a term, a, a political term used by uh, 
Euro Western um, writers and critics to acknowledge the the violences of settler colonialism and the histories um, in in which they are pretty firmly embedded. Um, but it's also a way for uh, non-white folks to also acknowledge um, kind of the the violences of that and to you know rather than just say. Um, European American or European Canadian to actually say, well, maybe settler American, you know, people who are descended from uh, and benefit from histories of um, very violent white settlement. Um, but it gets very complicated quite quickly when we're looking at, you know, are settlers just white folks? Um, what about mixed race people? What about people whose ancestors were um, forcibly brought to this hemisphere? What about people who came to this hemisphere as a result of um, catastrophes in their homelands or because of political uh, oppression and repression? Um, what about people who we would identify as white who came as a result of really blasted economic um, and social conditions um, in their homeland. I mean, certainly a lot of Irish and Scottish uh, immigrants who came to uh, Eastern North America and, you know, married in the Cherokee Nation and others um, came from really, really horrific uh, poverty. Um, sometimes they were on the vanguard of exploitation of indigenous peoples, and sometimes they weren't. I'm descended from some of those folks as well. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, but I'm also descended from a lot of um of settler folks as well. So I think settler is a complicated term um, that has to be, just like indigenous is. Um, I mean, one of the big issues always um, when we're talking about indigeneity is who who is indigenous and under what what terms. Um, and there are a lot of people who claim indigeneity who do so for legitimate reasons, but also for very, very troubling and exploitative and dangerous reasons. So indigenous as well is a term that is very complicated and asks us to think about issues such as kinship and um, politics and uh, relationships to land uh, and Kind of the, the also continuing with the histories of settler colonialism. There's a long history of white people claiming um, indigeneity for very, very um, corrupt political and economic reasons. And so indigenous as well is a term we have to, to trouble and challenge. And then we have terms like native and aboriginal and American Indian, and those have all of their complicated valences as well. Um, and literature for me is a big one. I mean, I, think, I don't think you can talk about indigenous literature and not trouble the category of literature because so often we think of the literary more broadly as um, as alphabetic texts that carry a particular gravitas or carry a particular significance. But literature itself, even the definition, is not an apolitical term. Um, and what is identified as literature uh, by kind of classic literary scholarship um, doesn't always encompass a wide range of expressive technologies that indigenous peoples have been using since time immemorial. So um, I think one thing I like to do in my literary studies courses is to, to challenge the idea of the literary as just those alphabetic texts um, in dusty books, but also you know, we have Birchwark scrolls that are literature that we could see as literature. We, there are wampum belts we could see as literature. We could look at uh, totem poles and carved house posts as literature of a kind as well. Uh, so I think 
one of my arguments is that we have to, all of the terms that we often take for granted are terms that are really, they're very heavy with significance and sometimes in really positive ways and sometimes in very negative ways. But I think by not, by not grappling with the, the various levels of significance in these terms, we run the risk of real misunderstanding. And I think overlooking some important conversations that we can and should be having. And one of the ways in the book that you describe um, underscoring the kind of political weight of the term literature is in your undergraduate classes, you sometimes have your <laughs> students. I, I love this story. It was great. You have your students read certain genres that kind of that themselves are politically loaded in public spaces to see people's reactions. Can you tell a little bit about that particular um, exercise? I, it was a really wonderful one that I'd like to try to fit into my own teaching in some way because it was it was striking. Yeah, so this I actually got this idea from a professor of mine uh, when I was a graduate student. Her name is Domino Perez, and she teaches at the University of Texas at Austin now. Um, and it, this was when I was teaching an introductory narrative course, and we would read kind of high literature, um, but we'd also read a lot of different materials. And one of the things I would have students do is they would have to go get a romance novel, and like Harlequin, like the the most stereotypical kind of romance novel that they could find. And then they would have to read it in a public place. Now this created all kinds of interesting responses. Uh, I told them you can't just, you can't just, well, this is actually before you, we ordered books online too much. It's been a few years since I've done it, but uh, I said, you actually have to go to the store. It can be used or you can go to the library, but you actually have to go to a place. You can't just borrow it from a friend. You have to go into a space, get the book and then you have to sit in a public space and read it. And students were so, well, some students were very anxious. Some students were very empowered because a lot of students read these books and they have internalized a uh, presumption that this is either not literature at all or very substandard literature or something to be ashamed of. Um, and so we would talk about it. We would talk about um, their experience. And so often, especially the bros, they would be very, very uncomfortable. Uh, but most of the time they really, they took it seriously. And then we would, we would interrogate that and we'd say, well, why are you, why are you uncomfortable? Um, why are you embarrassed? What is it about this? And so we would talk about the, the social, uh, the social presumptions that go into readership. Um, and we would talk about the misogyny at the heart of people's attitude, a lot of people's attitudes toward romance novels. And then a lot of the students who've read the romance novels, uh, they would actually, they would bring it to family members who had mocked them and said, see, we're, we're reading this in a university class. Don't be making fun of me anymore. And so it was really empowering for some of them, but we would, we would interrogate that. And then we'd look at a wide range of genres. So what are the stereotypes we have about people who read science fiction and fantasy? What are the stereotypes we have about people who read um, Westerns or thrillers? And then really kind of unpack how literature is never just the text, but it's very much embedded within social relations. And, um, our presumptions about genre are also presumptions we have about other kinds of literature. So it's one thing to think that, that about genre, but what happens when we pathologize an entire people as not being literary, as not having um, any sort of literary merit? Uh, and it, it always made for some really fascinating conversations. And uh, I think students, students came away from that with a better understanding, not just of kind of what literature is to them, but also how literature is dealt with in the world around them. 
I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in one of those classrooms. It really does sound like a great, a great exercise. Um, let's get into some of the, the, the meat of the book a little bit, though. And um, you frame the, the book uh, chapter by chapter as a series of questions, um, the first of which that you ask is, how do we learn to be human? And you answer that question in part through indigenous ideas about kinship. What do you mean when you talk about kinship in this context? And who are some of the writers whose work exemplifies indigenous kinship? Oh, well, I would actually say I mean, most indigenous writers, if not all that I can think of, take kinship very, very seriously. Although it'll look very different, of course, um, based on the, the writer and the, and the works. Um, to my mind, kinship is pretty central to indigenous ideas about personhood because, I mean, what, that's actually been one of the things that's been most uh, most targeted by settler colonialism is kinship and relationship. And indigenous identities, especially those that are culturally grounded, tend to be very much more focused on communal good than individual achievement. Um, not to say that, you know, you always want to be careful that this, you're not making sweeping, uh, sweeping claims. Right. Uh, but I think more often than not, we see collective highlighted over individual or at least individual in relation to collective, as opposed to individual in contrast to community. Um, and so when we're talking about indigenous notions of what it is to be human, those are deeply, deeply embedded in what it is to be in relation with others. Um, and human isn't just a, a state of kind of biological being, but it's, it's how we learn culturally to behave as a human being. Um, and one of the things we see in, in so much of the historical record, um, any conversations between, um, settler populations and indigenous peoples often come down to this idea about um, what it is to be a good human being and um, the, the very, very different models of being a human um, compared of, of uh, kind of extractive colonialism compared to that of kinship based peoples. So I think it's uh, I can't really imagine talking about what it is to be human without also talking about what it is to be in in relation with a wider, a wider community of human and other than human peoples. And who are some of the writers that, um, that, that exemplify this, that you talk about in the book? Um, in that chapter, I've actually got to pull out my book, um, just to remember what I wrote. Uh, so, uh, in that chapter, two of the writers I really took up, um, were, uh, Ella Deloria and, uh, uh, Gary Hobson. Uh, both of whom are writing at very different times. So Gary Hobson is a contemporary uh, Quapaw, Cherokee, uh, and Chickasaw writer, and Ella Deloria was a, a Dakota writer. Um, and both, uh, and she wrote mostly in the early part of the 20th century, but both are taking up really complicated notions of kinship and very different times. So Deloria's novel, Water Lily, um, is set just um, before the the onset of uh, settler colonial invasion into uh, traditional territories, whereas uh, Hobson's book is taking place in the early 20th century um, during the real nadir of um, southeastern Indian people's um, experience with settler colonialism, where populations are at a real low ebb and um, the assimilative processes have really 
uh, been quite catastrophic for a lot of people. So, but both are still taking up these notions of what it is to be a good person, to be a good human being within relation uh, to either very intact communities or very fragmented and uh, traumatized communities. And what can indigenous literatures teach readers about having a more expansive view of relationships? What does it mean to be a good relative in your estimation and in the estimation of some of the indigenous writers that you talk about in the book? Well, I think um, when we're talking about relatives, we're not only talking about what it is to be a relative to just to other human beings, but to an entire um, cosmos of other than human persons. Um, so it's, it's to think, you know, to ground what it is to be human in a, in a wider constellation of influences and also understanding your own, your own roles and participation to be really important that you, you have to be thinking beyond yourself. You have to be thinking of other peoples. Um, you have to be thinking of futures as well. Um, so it's, it's thinking about, both space and time and then relationality through that. Uh, so I think uh, the works that we have, indigenous writers are thinking very, very broadly when thinking about what it is to be a good relative, um, thinking very broadly about what it is to be a good relative to the land and to the various beings who abide there. Um, this is one of the, the central struggles for indigenous peoples is to maintain those links and those responsibilities to the land, to the ancestors, to future descendants. Um, and we see that in poetry, we see that in fiction, we see that in creative nonfiction, a wide range of works. Uh, these are constant themes and constant concerns that come up again and again and again. And I think by bringing in a wide range of writers who are talking about that, we get a good sense of the, the multiple ways one can be a good relative. Uh, one thing I didn't want to do is just kind of show one exemplary text that I thought answered the whole question because there's no text or no one writer who could possibly do that um, because we're, we have lots of different contexts and lots of different communities. You've written extensively both in this book and elsewhere about the genre of fantasy, about its power and about its limitations as well. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those, its power and its limitations, and also about the idea, the concept, I guess I would call it, of wonderworks, which is a term that you've coined, um, and I'm wondering what it means and why you find it to be useful. Well, I'm, I'm a fantasy geek from way back. I like to call myself a Cherokee hobbit because I really, I really am just a big fantasy geek. But I think one of the realities for any, any you know, black, indigenous, person of color reader who is, is dealing with uh, speculative fiction as an overarching genre is it's still very white. It's still very colonial in its interests and its presumptions. Um, and it's still very alienating in terms of how it understands the possibilities of reality. So, you know, if in fantasy you can have animals that have personhood, you can have plants that communicate with human beings. But if you say that's happening in the, the material reality around us, you're seen as pathological or deluded. Um, but in so many of our ceremonial traditions, that's exactly how it's understood. In so many of our languages, um, agency is understood as being far more than just human agency. So I think when we talk about fantasy, the 
counterpart to that is the idea of a reality that is devoid of other than human sub subjectivity and personhood. So I'm always really kind of, I'm leery of fantasy as the, or even speculative fiction in some ways as the catch all term for, um, imaginative literatures that come from other cultural worldviews because, you know, in, in so many of these worldviews, animals having, um, having voices and personalities and motivations of their own would not in any way be seen as fantastical. That would be seen as quite realistic. So I, I wanted to find a term that was better able to engage and encompass a wider range of, um, of epistemological possibilities. And so I was, and, and wonder was a term that kept coming up a lot for me. This idea of, you know, wonder isn't just about what's, um, delightful in its possibility, but also what, what could be very challenging and even dangerous, but it, it presumes, uh, some sort of relationship beyond abjection and beyond pathology. And so, uh, when I was a kid, there was a C, uh, PBS series called wonder works and that kind of stuck with me. And I thought, actually, that's what we're, what we're talking about is it's, um, we're talking about wonder and we're talking about creative works that are emerging out of that. It's, uh, it leaves a lot of possibility. It doesn't, it's not directive. It's not, um, prescriptive, but it leaves possibility for people to write very overtly and explicitly fantastical works. I'm a fantasy novelist as well. And my works are set in secondary worlds. And I don't presume that those are our reality, but it can also encompass works that might lead those categories quite significantly. Could you talk about a couple works, some maybe with some of the ones that you mentioned in the book itself that fall under this rubric of wonder works? Yeah, well, one, um, one work I really love is a story called, um, Oh, now I'm done. The, the character is Spear Shaker. I've got to, sorry, I've got to pull up my book. It's so uh, putting you on the spot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no worries. Um, but, um, oh, The Undiscovered, and it's by uh, that one, yeah. Yeah, an Oklahoma Cherokee writer named uh, William Sanders. And it's an alternate history story of what would have happened if Shakespeare had gotten in a little bit of a drunken stupor and ended up on a ship bound for Virginia. Um, and ended up through various mischance, uh, uh, a captive in a Cherokee community. Well, he's still Shakespeare, so he's still probably going to write plays. And so the whole story is about how he writes Hamlet's or Amelady in, uh, in a Cherokee community and how it goes hilariously, but also kind of sadly awry for him. Um, and it's a beautiful story. It's a really interesting story about cross-cultural communication, about kinship beyond difference, um, and about otherness that isn't seen as um, contaminating or dangerous, but otherness that is understood and accepted for its own beauty. Uh, so that's that's one one text that I really really adore. Um, and Sanders was a, a very explicitly science fiction and fantasy writer. And another one I, I briefly mentioned is Eden Robinson's Monkey Beach, which is not read typically as a speculative fiction work, but is seen sometimes um, as a northern gothic novel um, or somewhat magic, magic realist um, in its orientation because it, it takes up spirit 
spirit beings um, and the spirit world in some really beautiful and complicated ways. But I think calling it magical realism or calling it fantasy or even calling it gothic does a kind of disservice to the complicated uh, world that the characters and the narrative are embedded in. And to, to call it that presumes that the spiritual realities uh, that it's responding to are somehow not real, that they're somehow fantastical as well. And I think we have to keep that middle ground of possibility open. So I think WonderWorks makes that possible and works that might be read in a wide wide range of ways can also inhabit that space quite comfortably. It gets back to what we talked a little bit about at the beginning of this podcast, where, you know, the the, the terms and the the the, the kind of word boxes that we put things into, they shape the, the framing and the way that people consider these things. And so they're really important and it's important to, to, to get them right, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, we can have very explicitly fantasy and science fiction works. There's a book coming out very soon by Rebecca Roanhorse uh, called Trail of Lightning. I haven't read it yet, but I'm super excited. It's a post-apocalyptic uh, Navajo uh, novel. I can't wait to read that. I think it's great. So we still do works within established genres, but I think we also do works that, that expand well beyond those because those genres aren't necessarily – our categories. They're categories we can work pretty comfortably within, but they aren't necessarily um, they aren't necessarily always conducive or useful for our purposes. And among the many stories that your book brought to my attention was the 1997 novel A Quality of Light by a writer mm-hmm. named Richard Wagamese. I think I'm pronouncing that right, which which has shot up really to the top of my reading list. I can't wait to check it out myself. Um, even though the book gives away the ending. So just as a quick note, yeah. your book is a spoiler. So just keep that in mind if you're planning on picking this up. But if you could, could you tell us a little bit about that book in particular and more so how it speaks to another one of the questions that you raise in the book, which is how do we learn to live together? Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. Most readers who love Wagamese's work don't know that book. It, uh, it's not – I don't believe it's in print anymore. Um, and it, it's not one of the ones that really kind of captures um, – the, the wider reading public's imagination, but I think it's one that really needs to be back out there. Um, so it's the story of two young, two boys, one who's Ojibwe, but raised by white parents, uh, and the other who is white, um, but wants to be an Indian. Um, and they're the best of friends. Uh, and their friendship gets tested as they grow older, where the um, Ojibwe character uh, starts to, uh, move into a life of service to indigenous peoples through ministry, through Christian ministry. And the young white boy, um, finds his purpose through increasingly, uh, militant indigenous activism. Uh, and it all culminates in a, in a kind of a siege, uh, of a building where the, the young boy, um, or the, the, the white character, uh, takes, hostages um, because he wants to bring um, attention to the the situation of indigenous peoples. And so the, the minister, the Ojibwe minister, has to come and talk with him, and they have to work through their history together and separately and how how it was they came to where they are and how, how they're going to go forward in their relationship, not just with one another, but um, with the larger world. And it's it's a very challenging book. It's a very beautiful book. But I think one of the things it does is it it challenges our presumptions about identity, 
um, about belonging, about our shared pasts um, and our shared future. And um, I think it asks a lot of questions that it doesn't offer a lot of firm answers to. And I think that's for the good of it. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's a very heartbreaking book, but it's quite lovely. And although we're recording this podcast under the auspices of New Books in the American West, this book is not strictly you know, contained within that kind of vague region that is sometimes considered the West at all. It's really much more continentally and even globally minded as a work. Um, and one of the stories that you tell, which is not contained in this idea of the West, is that of your own family. Would you mind telling us a little bit of that story and why you decided to include it in the book? Well, I think that chapter, because I, I had the manuscript pretty well done before I added the biographical chapter, um, but something was missing. And I realized what that was, was kind of the personal stakes and you know what it, what was it about this that was really particularly meaningful to me and my family. And I had been doing a lot of work with um, our family allotment maps um, and allotment was a a policy that the U.S. government imposed on the Cherokees and a number of other nations in the Indian Territory um, to uh, to create individual privatization of collective land base um, and also to make possible Oklahoma statehood. And it was a pretty catastrophic uh, policy um, on our communities and uh, the the role that emerged from that, the, the citizenship role, um, is the foundation for our contemporary citizenship today. Um, but a lot of people don't know what those allotment maps look like. And a lot of people don't know where our ancestors actually had their individual allotments. Cause a lot of those allotments have since passed on to non-indigenous hands, um, and certainly non-Cherokee hands. Uh, and so I was thinking a lot about those maps and what they said, uh, both in terms of how they reflected devastation, but also how they reflected agency. There's a really great work by a scholar named Rose Stremlau called Sustaining the Cherokee Family, where she looks at allotment um, and not just about the, the negative impacts on Cherokee communities, but also how families worked very hard to maintain uh, those community ties as a result of, um, or in, in, in the midst of all of this chaos. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the ruptures in my family's history. So my, uh, my great-grandfather, it was his allotment um, in just north of Tulsa. My grandmother was born either on the allotment or um, very nearby. Um, and then when she was in her, her teens, she and her family uh, moved to eastern Colorado, where my dad and I both were born. And um, she died when my dad was 14, and she had maintained very strong ties with her Oklahoma kin, but my dad lost most of those ties, not all of them, but most of them. And so I grew up knowing we were Cherokee. I grew up knowing um, something about those roots, but I didn't know kind of the deeper significance of that. And so the, the final chapter is really looking at the ruptures in our family history as read through those allotment maps um, and thinking about those maps as a kind of cartographic kinscape that helps us see kind of a picture of Cherokee peoplehood under siege at a certain time, but also the agency of Cherokees trying to maintain those bonds. And then thinking about what has happened with my family since we've left Oklahoma um, and 
and kind of the process of reconnecting and reestablishing some of those roots and also just where some of those ruptures probably will never be bridged, but also how those ruptures also speak to our experiences as outland Cherokee people who have clear and strong ties, but are not culturally uh, grounded in the lands of the Cherokee people in Northeast Oklahoma. Um, I'm pretty proud of the chapter. I think that it's, it's one that, um, that captures something for us, but I think it also speaks to a lot of other folks who have read, read it. Um, and who are also interested in, in different ways of understanding belonging through, through and in spite of our, our ruptured histories. Um, while also keeping very, very clear focus on the fact that not everybody sold their allotments, not everybody left the nation, the territorial boundaries, not everybody was scattered. And I think so often we, we focus our attention on people whose ties are disrupted at the expense of people whose ties were not, who've kept those fires going, who've maintained those structures. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's easy for those of us who are outland Cherokees to kind of focus on outlandness. Um, and, but it takes a lot of attention away from people who've maintained things. Um, and because they've maintained things, they've kept things so that we can actually reconnect in good ways. So I think trying to keep those two aspects in balance, both disruption and, um, maintenance, because, uh, it's too, way too easy to focus on the, on the, the ruptured narrative and not on the continuity narrative. Yeah, the book really um, embraces complication at every turn um, and, and really it, it rejects easy answers throughout. And I really appreciated that. It was, it, was, it was a joy to read for that reason, among others. Thank you. So as we begin to wrap up here, I want to return again to really that, that motivating question that, that kind of permeates throughout the entire book and one that, that you answer, I thought, very well in the conclusion, which is why do indigenous literatures matter? Maybe it's a self-evident answer, but it's still an answer that's worth, worth articulating. Well, and, and again, here's a, here's another spoiler, but I, I don't. I think this is a perfectly appropriate spoiler. Um, indigenous literatures matter because indigenous people matter. Um, you know, we we belong in this world in all of our complicated diversity. We are part of this world. We have always been part of these lands. Um, our languages, even imperiled, have been spoken in these lands since time immemorial. Um, our memory, our cultural values, our kinship relations, our uh, our literatures, our arts, our bodies are all from this place, no matter how diverse we may be, no matter how much we may look different or sound different from our ancestors or how similar we are to our ancestors. We, we are part of this world. Um, and for that reason alone, not to mention all of the beautiful artistry and powerful uh, understandings about the world, we, we belong in these conversations. Um, we matter. Our words matter. Our works matter. And so, too, does our lit- do our literatures. So now that this book is out and being read by, by the masses, um, what are you working on next? Do you have another project in mind kind of coming down the pike? Oh, I've got too many. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, I'm finishing up uh, Cultural History of Raccoons, which is kind of the – Wow. 
Yeah, the counterpart of my my cultural history of badgers I published a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I have another fantasy novel I'm working on, and then I have a few different projects um, I'm on the, in the early stages of working on uh, on allotment narratives because I think allotment is one of those histories that you know we're we're more known for removal for the Trail of Tears than we are for allotment. But in a lot of ways, I think allotment was had a much more profound impact on us as a nation. Um, and I just think there are a lot of stories to tell, not just for Cherokees, but for all indigenous peoples who had to deal with allotment and privatization pressures. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of projects, uh, a lot of projects on the go, uh, but I'm pretty excited. I feel, I feel pretty motivated. This is probably my last major foray into strictly literary studies for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in scholarship that's a bit askew. Um, and kind of from a, from a, a funkier perspective. So, and finally, this is a quick follow up since this is, it's among other things, but it is in part a book about books. Is there anything that you've read recently that you'd like to give a quick shout out to? Oh yes. Uh, so there's a really astonishing novel, uh, by, uh, Joshua Whitehead, uh, who's a writer here in Canada called Johnny Appleseed. Um, and it's, a I, I, it's hard to describe, but it's a kind of fabulous and fierce um, indigiqueer story about a, a really powerful um, two-spirit um, person who is trying to get back home um, for a funeral, uh, and, but is kind of navigating a lot of complexities of love, uh, uh, lust, belonging, um, and um, and community along the way. It's just a beautiful book. It's a pretty, uh, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's quite sexy, it's uh, very in-your-face. Um, it's, it's just an astonishing novel, so I, I hope it gets a very, very wide readership. Well, I hope our listeners will, uh, will seek that book out. Daniel Heath Justice is a professor of First Nations and Indigenous Studies and English at the University of British Columbia. His new book, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, came out in 2018 with Wilfrid Laurier University Press. Daniel, thanks again for joining us today. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.